High FM 101.9 megahertz of life. There is another almost as fundamental issue before us, which uh, the government is very apparently excited about because they announced at, after their December conference that they were going ahead with the implementation of the national health insurance. Now, this, this proposal has been before us for over a decade. It's, we could probably more easily afford to send a mission to Mars than to uh, afford this, this, this program. It threatens to be very scary for people who are on medical aids, the middle class in particular, who rely on, 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 the, on those medical aids and on, and on having decent health care. But don't hear it from me. Let me introduce you to my guest, who is the chairman of the Free Market Foundation's Health Policy Unit. Welcome, Michael Setas. Thank you, Sora. Thanks for having me on. Michael, I think most people have heard about the NHI um, and with trepidation because one doesn't often hear of it in, in, in terribly encouraging terms. Very, very basically, what is it and uh, what, 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 is, what is the thinking of government behind it? Um, pure socialism, actually. Um, as we mentioned, uh, you, you spoke about earlier. But uh, effectively, what uh, what the proposal entails is a nationalisation of the private sector and then an amalgamation simultaneously with the public sector, taking those two sectors together and and placing them under the control of a single state-owned entity, which will be called the NHI Fund. Uh, and this NHI Fund will be uh, under the full control of of the Minister of Health and that, that portfolio uh, within government. The, the, the real concerns, I think, constitutional issues are that it removes the right of individuals who say currently are who, who on medical aid to to have their own private cover. Um, so that's fundamentally being taken away with this proposal because it says that medical aids will not be allowed to run parallel with the, with the NHI for the services that the NHI delivers. Only for services that the NHI does not deliver can can medical aid still exist. Uh, and to that degree, there will be a, pr- a private sector. But fundamentally, it's taking away that right to access private health care. I, I recently had a personal experience uh, with, a, with, a, with a parent undergoing an angiogram in a private hospital. And it was extraordinary, both that it was arranged within a day. Um, it happened on the day it was arranged. It, the technology was extraordinary. Um, probably saved her from dying of a heart attack. And in, uh, in some ways, or I almost gets the impression, particularly hearing from people outside of the country, that there are not a lot of places where if you pay for your, medic- your private medical care, you can really get, on the whole, superb, uh, timeless uh, medical assistance. And the discussion around, which is not private, admittedly, but the discussion around the National Health Service in Britain sounds horrific. I mean, waiting periods, they're probably sure a whole lot of people are going to die before they ever see a doctor or a nurse. Yeah, look, I mean, I think worldwide um, health systems, whether they're national or private, are under quite a lot of pressure now. Post, post the pandemic, there's definitely been some sort of surge in terms of, of care care requirements. Um, but I think to go back to what the NHI is proposing, it's, it's, uh, the fundamentals there are harking back to very old health systems like the British NHS, uh, which was born in 1948 post, post the Second World War. Now, at the time, that was the thinking that, that would make the NHS work. Mm-hmm. And it did, it did work for some, some years. But by, by the 70s and the 80s, the British realized that the centralized 
socialist system doesn't work properly, doesn't work well. And they changed, they've changed the NHS fundamentally mm. from what it was there. Now, one of the criticisms I have for this NHR proposal is that the current government is not learning from that. Mm. We are going to the process of wanting to absolutely centralize everything and put it under the control of, of the NHR fund. Or you, you could almost call it you know, the Ministry of Health in, in the UK. But Britain, Britain realized it doesn't work. So for the last 30 years, the NHS has been fundamentally decentralized into mm-hmm. now into the district health authorities, the hospital trusts. They've also introduced competition to the effect that patients now have much more choice in the system. Mm-hmm. So we're actually going backwards into a, a Oh, harking back to an old era, almost born into what you were saying earlier with the Soviet thinking of, of central control. Um, and I think it's a fundamental error that they're not learning from that, uh, that even the the first world centralized systems realize that the centralization doesn't mm. work. How on earth do we, are we going to achieve that given our public service, the, the level of skills in our public service, which is nowhere near what it is in Britain. Well, I mean, historically, we've had public hospitals scattered around the country. We've had private mm. hospitals scattered around the country. And certainly my recall two, three decades ago is by and large people got a service um, mm. in the area, roughly in the area in, in which, in, to, to which they had access. But you've seen such a degradation of, of, of hospitals mm. and an extra- I think an extraordinary ineptitude. I don't know who manages the hospitals. And obviously the, the consequences of both end up being corruption. Mm. Um, how, what, tied to that is the understanding that over 80% of, of public hospitals would not qualify to be NHR hospitals yeah. under the fund. Yeah. Surely this, what the, the government has to do one of two things. Either it has to rely into, almost entirely on the private sector to fill the gap, which it I assume it just cannot do. Um, things would just collapse. Or they have to repair the hospitals. They have improved mm. the hospitals. Mm. And I heard, I think there was a report last week about, no, no, they, they've got to put aside, I, I thought it was 80 billion, you said it was 200 billion, to repair hospitals. Mm. And mm. surely the, two things. One is they need to do that anyway to make them viable for the NHI. And secondly, if they are viable, they don't really need the, the NHI. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it's a fundamental point that, that's worth bearing consideration and that the public should be more aware of is that the, the South African public health system is a very substantial asset. It's by far the biggest public health system on the African continent and by far I wouldn't say by far, but certainly in, in, in the scale of developing economies, it's a very it's it's right up there with, with the you know, of the biggest and the best that you've got out there. Um so the assets there. The problem is that the, the 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 management within that asset has now been fundamentally stripped away through the the, the usual symptoms of of corruption and cadre deployment, which have now dismantled its ability to deliver proper healthcare. Um, the scary thing about the public system is that if we look at the the public health budget, it has more than doubled in the last 20 years in real mm. and per capita terms. So, in other words, taking into account inflation, taking into account the growth in population. They have more than double the budget now than what they had 20 years ago, and yet the system is just falling over. Mm. Um, so we need to look at why that resource, which is well funded, mm. and, and, and so just to add to that is what the number of medical personnel working in the public sector is also now much bigger than it was mm. 15, 20 years ago. So we've got more doctors, we've got more money. The hospitals are still there. They are in a disarray. I agree with the minister on that. But we'd have to ask the question as to why, because there is budget for maintenance in the hospitals through the Department of Public Works. But there's just absolutely no accountability in Mm. terms of why 
why they're not repaired. Uh, Charlotte Monseca Hospital is a perfect example. Mm. It, it mm-hmm. had that big fire in April 21, was it? Well, I no. 20. Yeah, 21, I think. Okay. We, we were talking a long time. Yeah. And it's I can't still, remember. Like, it's happened. They haven't fixed it. I mean, for goodness sake, it's one of the biggest. It's, it's, I think it's the second or third biggest hospital in the country. Mm. It's a big feeder for Gauteng. And it's just being left half repaired now. Mm. I mean, I think the whole issue of competence of management, because I generally hold by the view that good management can make a huge amount of difference if left to manage. But the, the management has to be good. They have to know what they're doing. And uh, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's the case in, in, many, in many of the hospitals. Um, the other thing is you, you just mentioned, you know, that public works is meant to, you know, do the repairs. But I, I was, I've always been fascinated by the fact that it, it, efficiency-wise it doesn't make sense to have a department yeah. to do repairs for everybody else because you rely on the largesse, the goodwill, the competence, the non-corruption of that department. You have no control over the department. And that's why I remember for, for long periods, and I'm not sure if it's probably – no one knows at this stage because, as you say, Charlotte Kukeke hasn't been repaired. But lifts being out of order for months. Yeah. I mean yeah. – Surely one of the things that any hospital individual or group needs to be able to determine what it needs, perhaps tender for it or, or seek a quote, mm. bring in the, the people to repair and get the th- things repaired. And, and that's part of the sort of malaise mm. of the whole system. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, what, what that, that separation of having the maintenance uh, being done by a separate department creates this ability for Finger pointing. So the Department of Health says it's public works. Public works says it's the Department of Health. Who doesn't facilitate that they can come in and do the work? So I mean, I, in my opinion, I mean, I'm, I, I think it might require some debate around. But, but potentially, that the the public works budget that's allocated towards health should rather be managed within the Department mm-hmm. of Health, so that they they then the very people working in in there can actually do the maintenance mm-hmm. and fix stories of lifts not working or water supplies being out of you know it was the case with uh, the doctor at Rahima Musa mm. um, who wrote that open letter and then instead of the CEO of the hospital um, actually dealing with the complaints that he raised he was suspended mm. for dissent mm. I mean it's it's you know <laughs> well that, that's a very that's that's a sign of poor management when the perception from from the CEO is that they is that she's just been insulted, I guess. Mm. And you deal with insults, you don't deal with the substance. You don't you don't feel perhaps a bit ashamed. Shame doesn't seem to be a thing. How much, or do we know how much the NHI is supposed to cost? Um, well, yeah, that's one of the key issues in the whole policy proposal is a, is a, is a policy of this magnitude, which. Um, let me say it's 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 it is absolutely the biggest financial rearrangement since the dawn of democracy in South Africa and what it entails. Um I mean the current the current public budget is about two hundred and forty billion Rand. Um and there's roughly an equal amount spent in the private sector by private citizens. And I emphasize that the spent by private citizens, not government money. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the two sectors together. So we, if we say roughly 500 billion, um, the government now has to put that under its, under single control in a single entity. Um, remembering that the current public budget is not controlled by the National Department of Health. It's one of the two competencies, uh, oh, along right. with, along with education that's actually a provincial competency. 
So the the budgets are distributed to the provinces, which then go down to the to, uh, district health authorities. So there's no centralized control or pot of money. Now the NHR proposals take you want to take this pot of money and put it under into a single entity. We we see an absolute recipe for rampant mm. rampant c- corruption and patronage. You know things like in the NHR there'll be a, there'll be a committee that will accredit providers. So now if you're a hospital or a clinic, private or public, we, this committee is going to decide whether you can provide services in the area that you're in. So you can imagine, the, you know, I mean, given, given, given the state of, uh, of our public service, you know, the, the, the lines are clearly open for that, that type of, of, of corruption to, to um, just proliferate mm-hmm. under the structure because of the centralization. Uh, if, it, if it remained decentralized like the public system is now, I think, with uh, with a clearing out of some of the problems, the the system could work, and it, I think I think the the policy is fixing the wrong thing. It's, mm. it's it's saying that there's not enough resource and that there's not enough doctors. But when you look at the numbers, mm. the resources mm. are there. Um, what should be happening is fixing the governance problems mm-hmm. that exist. The governance problems uh, in the public system have been they've been governance has been dismantled. It's very much like. The Eskom thing, um, slightly different in terms of how it works. We, in Eskom, there's a sabotage to, to break the system. Uh, in the, in the public health system, it's to, to try and proliferate the, the, the level of theft that's occurring mm-hmm. within the system. You know, medicines, contracts that are picked up. You know, we've seen that horrific assassination in 2021 of Babita Diakaram because she uncovered 850 million rands worth of dodgy contracts at one hospital. That was the Tembisa. One hospital. There are 420 public hospitals in South Africa. Uh, the numbers are truly scary. Um, I mean, to pick up on a point you made, and of course the centralization of, of huge amounts of money, of which government doesn't know entirely what it should be, is the idea that, and I mean, this is purely, this is dystopian, that essentially the health service is going to be run by a committee. Mm. And not just committee, but committees that are at a, a complete and utter remove. Can you just give, because uh, it's just fascinating to hear that from you on, on sort of what effect it will have on do- the ability of doctors to perform their functions. Oh, it'll be disabling. I mean, it, it, you know, the, I mentioned earlier about the NHS that they discovered this in the 70s. They said you cannot have a central committee deciding what healthcare gets delivered, you know, like in the South African context, uh, in northern Kozili Natal in a rural village. You know, mm. I mean, the doctor on hand has to decide what's best. And the, and the healthcare demands and the disease burden will also be different in different areas. You know, the Western Cape, for example, is fundamentally different to, to say, northern KwaZulu Natal in terms. So you can't have a committee saying, yes, a, uh, he has a uniform uh, benefit structure, and these are the services that are going to be delivered, where the needs are different regionally mm-hmm. from one area to the next. Um, you know, so for ex- KwaZulu Natal, for example, has possibly the highest um, uh, rate of HIV infection in the world. Mm-hmm. It fundamentally needs different mm-hmm. care to what, say, is required in the Western Cape, which doesn't have that level of HIV infection. But the Western Cape has, unfortunately, very high levels of of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so different disease burden, different demands on the health system, and you can't have a central committee deciding uniformly mm. uh, what's required in those areas. It mm. just simply doesn't work. No, it's, it's very creepy. But you, you do see, and you you have said that you've seen an element of hope in all of this, um, and that is the case that involved the uh, certificate of need for doctors. Mm. Yeah, I was I was I was very encouraged by that. Um, so the the NHR proposal requires 13 different acts to be amended, 
um, <laughs> to make it work. So it just gives, it gives you a gist of the, the, the complexity of the system. It is actually, I, I, I must be honest, I truly think it's totally beyond government mm. to, to implement and run properly. But be that as it may, one of the pillars of it was the Certificate of Need, which was part of the National Health Act, which was passed many years ago, almost 20 years ago. But the section relating to the Certificate of Need was suspended and, and never implemented, which the government now tried to do uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. And what the certificate of need really basically said was that they would control doctors as to where they could practice, what they could practice, what equipment they could own, uh, what they could um, essentially deliver to um, in, you know, in their practice, which was draconian and hopelessly unconstitutional. And thankfully, in a court case brought by Solidarity and SAIPA, which is one of the largest uh, doctor associations, um, a high court judge did knock down the certificate of needs and, and on six counts declared them unconstitutional. Mm. Now, there is some – the government's trying to have that reversed. Uh, they're trying to rescind that court case, which is a whole separate legal case, and that's ongoing at this point in time. So we'll see where that comes out. Mm. I think if, if, the, if the judge's standings of unconstitutionality stand, I think the NHR is then going to have a hard time trying to, mm. trying to be implemented. Mm. So I think very encouraging that, that this court case has, has – uh, turned out the way it has. So it's almost like, like it has the potential to knock out a table leg uh, mm. by, by removing that. Uh, because if you can't dictate where, where do- yeah. doctors go, a, ho- a whole facet yeah. of it just, yeah. just falls you, away. You know, you know, the fundamental point about that is that if you want a health system to work, you have to get doctors on side. Mm. You can't be antagonistic mm. towards them because doctors will just leave. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Michael, just a couple of uh, issues. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's it's one of the things that the I suppose the taxpaying classes fear the most about NHI is there's this, at the very point at which you're probably contributing most to the fiscus and probably getting least from it. Um, the one thing you've been able to rely on is being able to be a member of medical aid and to purchase uh, private medical care post after tax, and. Certainly, and and it's very difficult to disabuse people of the idea that if the NHI actually is implemented, um, and and with with all the consequences that uh, apparently entail, it seems to be a a potential motive. People will literally immigrate to to somewhere where they see a a secure, if if imperfect or less perfect, um, uh, medical medical system. And the government doesn't seem to have taken into account the fact, and, and they're all going to be in the same position, all the, all the ministers, etc. The fact that, that that really goes to the absolute core as people get older mm-hmm. is that real fear. They can they can find a way to deal with the lights and the load shedding and the whole lot of and, and safety and security, but healthcare is is, is the bitter end. I would agree with you there, but I mean, wouldn't, don't be surprised if, if MPs organize for themselves their own little private health system outside the NHR because they don't want to use it themselves. Um, but yeah, look, I think the three pillars for me that, you know, if you look at, if you look at taking these three things away from people, it's, it's security, education for their children and healthcare. People will immigrate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you take even a country, um, the NHR has been largely modeled on the Cuban health system. Okay. And, and of course, we know, we know how enamored the ANC are with, with the supposed um, achievements of Cuba, which, which are not really there once you examine the facts. But they nationalized their health system in the 70s. 
and a third of doctors left the country. This is before Cuba closed its borders and mm-hmm. everything. And their health outcomes plummeted. It took more than a decade for them to come right. Mm. Um, and, you know, Solidarity um, and SAMA, I think, have done surveys amongst doctors. And a very high percentage have said if – now, these are the doctors mm. immigrating who are also taxpayers mm. – um, they've said they've gone, and then I mean, it, we can, the evidence of it is there. We mm. can see it. Mm. Um, even now, before this NHS coming, doctors, mm. doctors are immigrating. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I've seen um, friends, children who've qualified, uh, mm. going or thinking of going, mm. and uh, um, it's it, as, 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 as it's, it's twofold. One is as a patient, and patients yeah. increasingly getting older, and mm. the other is the fact that the people who've been to service those people and others. Mm. Will, will will go so so the, the, that that will put huge amounts of pressure on the system. Um, just finally, kind of where broadly do the uh, medical aid? Where does the medical aid industry stand with regard to NHR? Um, yeah, look, I think I think there's concern. I think there's also been a high level of diplomacy, which yeah, to some degree is understandable. Um, uh, but I, but but I think um, you know it's, there's been some sort of more technical analysis to say really this we don't really believe this is going to work and and I think what I do like about what the private sector's done is to say we think it should be done like this. You are the alternatives mm. um, and not to fully endorse the NHR, you know, not to be completely um, you know politically correct around this thing. So. I do think we'll see some interesting developments over the next year or two. I think leading up to the 2024 elections, I think we need to prepare ourselves for the silly season of mania and promising the world and <laughs> the, the usual stuff. Um, but I think we can sweep that aside, uh, just you know, accept that it happens every time. The NHR gets thrown up every single election. Yes, it has done for about the last four or five elections. It's, 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 it's NHI, it's land, and it's race. It's mm. usually the sort of the, cocktail, yeah. the, the, the dreadful cocktail that, yeah. uh, that, yeah. that, that gets thrown around. Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. But the with with the, with something could we could there be a bit of speculation here? But the, 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 the could the possibility of the NHI not being implemented or just fading away? The fact that in every other respect things are so problematic with with ESCOM with the. Mm-hmm. Transnet with process, these things are so def- near defunct that, um, I mean, not only ideologically it's untenable, but you know they haven't got money to any. We haven't got money mm. to, to do anything at the moment. Mm. Um, I mean, but of course one doesn't get a, doesn't necessarily get a sense of that because of the sort of rah rah. Here's the election. These are the things we mm. promised to do for you. Um, so I, I don't know whether you have seen or are likely to see any change in government in, in government approach because of that sense of being besieged on all other fronts. Mm. And yeah, I, I, my, my sense for 2024 for the ANC is that they have nothing else to promise but the NHR. They've mm. lost. They can't provide electricity now. I think public, you know municipal services are falling apart, and it's obvious for people to see it is. So I think the NHR is going to be the the cornerstone of their political campaign mm. because I can't – and I only assume that because I can't see what else they can promise. Mm. Well, pr- yeah, prom- promises are very cheap. <laughs> Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, having on. And it's, it's really uh, – I hope to one day get you back and to say it's gone. It's not, it's not going to be an <laughs> issue, but uh, we'll have to see. Yeah. 
Let me follow up perhaps with something. It's pertaining to the ESCOM crisis, um, and it was an interesting article by the head of uh, business, uh, business Leadership South Africa, or Business Unity. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting my businesses uh, messed up. Babu um, Sisiwe Mavuso. And she has said, and I think this goes to a lot of what we've already said, is that it's not an ESCOM crisis. It's a crisis of political will. And, um, you know, you think, well, yeah, your political will was fine 10 years ago, but we're still having problems with political uh, will. It's, it's, it's astonishing. And she talks about the fact that businesses and government have prepared proposals for ways to alleviate the bounce of load shedding. And there's just a sense of despair that we're doing it all over again. The solutions have been tabled time and time again, and they've been adopted as policy, as we talked about the policy about removing transmission from ESCOM. But the policy appears to be in limbo. Somehow there's, we're always coming up against a new obstacle to delay implementation. Um, she says we need political will across government, particularly amongst all cabinet ministers. Otherwise, it's just more of the same. Um, there's no effective implementation. Things worsen by the day. And we've been talking about this since 2007. And she says it's just absolutely should be of no surprise to anybody whatsoever that we cannot attract investment, grow the economy, and reduce unemployment. And we're looking at, despite what the government says, everyone believes there's a very real possibility of going to stage eight load shedding. And this essentially is gives you just three opportunities at three and a half hours a day from, you know, so six in the morning to, to six in the morning, uh, 24-hour period to recharge devices and to prepare meals and the the the, the danger inherent of not having street lights of not having traf, uh, taxi uh, traffic lights working um the distress of having, having to operate without your resources as a as a family or as a business she believes could could spell the final death knell she says you know that there's so much it's the paralysis that's really the problem and that there the are things one can do such as incentivizing households and businesses to get off the grill. They will get off the grill if they haven't got lights. Get off the grid possibly through tax rebates for solar and inverter costs. This sort of thing should happen but no longer um, even appears on the agenda. Um, and I think this is essentially the... The essence is the political classes just have slunk into a corner and have probably, in effect, just given up.